Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. How far does the gospel reach? How far does the gospel reach? That's the question that I want to think about with you this morning. Now, perhaps um, from our own study of the book of Colossians, or maybe um, if you have any familiarity with the teachings of Scripture, you might say, well, the good news about Jesus, it it has to reach to the mind. There's something about meeting Jesus that shifts and renews our thinking. This, of, of course, is true. There's new ideas, new concepts, new insights, and so... The gospel reaches our heads, for sure. There's, there's something that, that gets changed and transformed there in terms of our minds. Or you might say, well, listen, the, the gospel reaches to our hearts. There's something about this, this scandalous love that God has held out for us that affects our own affections, that reaches the very core of who we are and maybe how we feel or perhaps the decisions we make. It, it reaches right to the core. Or you could say perhaps the, the gospel reaches even to the body. And it changes what we do with our bodies, how we live in the world, the choices we make, the things that we do and act upon. The gospel reaches all those things. Those are all great answers. To how far does the gospel reach? But what I want to press with you this morning is that Colossians has a little bit different answer. Of course, it's getting at all those things. And even earlier in chapter 3, he talks about we are being renewed in mind. So there's one. He talks about the hearts at different points. But Paul's contention is that the gospel reaches not just to you, but it reaches through you. The gospel reaches so far as to affect your very relationships with others. The gospel has a reach into the way we relate to one another. And we've already seen that in chapter 3. And now we're going to see that in a surprising way, perhaps, at the end of chapter 3. So this week, um, some of you may know, I was out of town. Um, We had sort of a bit of a surprise trip. Not surprise, but we had decided to go late in the game because our family wasn't feeling so well. And we took my kids and went with my in-laws to Disney World. We were in Florida all week, got back yesterday and spent time in the Magic Kingdom um, and also spent time in the Animal Kingdom. Um, and it was what, 90 plus degrees every day. It was, it was incredible and exhausting. Um, but the interesting thing about Disney is, um, listen, I, and I promise I won't, I won't start the Frozen soundtrack this morning. And I definitely won't, I, I won't, I won't say that I'm not going to talk about Bruno, but uh, I, I will tell you something about Disney you may not know which is that Disney is literally a government of itself, right? Perhaps you know this, but like it, it has its own district in terms of land territory and has a legal arrangement with Florida such that they control everything in that area. I mean, so let me just play this up. It's not just that Mickey sort of has the castle, right? Like M- Mickey, they, he owns all the pavement, in the area. 
Like all, all of the water lines that run through the ground, all of the electrical lines, like all of the transportation system, every, every piece of infrastructure in the entire area is operated and financed by Disney. Not even, they don't even have a fire department. It's Disney's fire department in the area. The reach of Mickey is to every square inch of that entire district. Like, they, he controls everything. Which, of course, reminds me of a, of a famous quote um, by this, this Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper, who, of course, said that there is not one square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. His reach, Christ's reach, goes far beyond just the district of Disney. And into all of the entire world, he has the rightful claim upon. And so what that means is, because Christians are united to Jesus, that's what we've been studying in chapters 2 and chapter 3 of this great little letter. Because, as we sang earlier, we died with Christ and we have risen with Christ, and we will be, re- we will be glorified with Christ, that, that it's not me, but it's Christ living within me, right? Empty me out. Fill me with Jesus. He's the fullness. Because we have been united by faith to Jesus, and literally everything he has gone through, we are now participating in by grace, we have been made, made new and raised to a new life. Because that's true, and Paul is pressing the sufficiency of Jesus for everything that we need, and he's pressing the centrality of Jesus for every aspect of life, not one square inch, does Jesus not rightfully claim mine? We now get to how far does he reach? And what I'm going to tell you this morning is that he reaches into our relationships. Let me just summarize the chapter for you so you can catch the flow, all right? So verses one through four, which is our Easter passage in April, you have been raised to live resurrected. What's true about Easter is is, is not that it's a one-time event or a past event. It's not only good for the future, but it's good for the present. You've been raised with Jesus to live now in a resurrected way. And you're to live resurrected, he goes on throughout chapter 3 in verses 5 through 11 to say, to live resurrected, you got to take that off. Using clothing as his metaphor, there are certain practices, certain behaviors that you've got to put off and stop. And then to live resurrected, you've got to put that on. There are certain things like kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. There are certain virtues that you have to put on like a new set of clothes. And then here in verses 18 through the beginning of chapter 4, you've got to rethink your relationships. That the new life in Christ extends even into our relationships. So this morning, as you heard me read a few minutes ago, we're going to be talking about marriage. We're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about slavery. All right? Welcome back, Trent. Um, but here's what we do at Emmanuel Fellowship, right? We, we teach the Bible. We don't, we don't skip over stuff like this, but we thoughtfully and, and carefully examine what it's saying. And then we apply the Bible. Right? We don't just expect this 
teaching, this, this paragraph here, to have no value or use to us. But we believe that God has something to say through these very words and that it matters for our lives. And so before we talk about these specific relationships, what I want to do is just take a few minutes to set some things up. I feel like it's probably good to do that. And then we'll jump into the specifics. But as I do, even when I'm setting them up, I, I want to ask you for some grace for the limitations of a sermon. Meaning, I only have a few minutes here to wade into some issues that deserve hours, perhaps even weeks, months worth of study in community. And so my intention here is not to close the discussion, but my desire here this morning is to lay open the scriptures and to invite conversation. The kind of conversation that I believe Christians should be having by grace and with charity with one another, and even with those who don't share the convictions of the Bible. So what are my disclaimers? All right, here's my disclaimers, right? Here's my setup. The first is the context, right? In the last 17 verses, before verse 18 of chapter 3, Paul's already been talking about relationships. He's already been talking about the way we relate to one another. And, and he said things like, hey, coveting, evil desire, anger, malice, slander, all of these kind of words and sins of mouth, all of the sins of body in the way that we relate to one another, sexually, all of the ways that disunity and conflict can destroy a community where there's a lack of patience, where there's a lack of forgiveness, where there's not meekness, where there's not peace and love. He's gone at great length to describe the beautiful community that a church can become in God's power in his strength. It's a supernatural kind of family. And here, that's the context. So first, you have to remember when we step into these verses, what's happened before these verses? All of these descriptors of, of the kind of virtuous and beautiful community that a church is supposed to become as it grows up in the Lord. So remember that renewed relationships is the focus of this chapter, right? But then also, let's think about just the approach general to studying God's word, not just in this chapter, but more broadly, right? We have to remember not only the context, but that Paul is speaking in a specific time and a specific place, right? We have to, in some ways, listen with ancient ears if we're ever going to understand what Paul is saying. First, before we can think about this for our own time and place, we have to understand the town, the setting of this particular passage. What was the time and place like? What, what was Paul saying there? Because it can't mean anything here for us that it didn't mean for something there for them. We have to understand it in its setting, and then we can cross the bridge, as it were, all the way to our own time and place and begin to make sense of what it means for us today. Like, perhaps we need to consider our approach to a passage like this rather than jumping into conclusions, or perhaps quickly dismissing the language. Like, think about this for a minute. I, I believe there are many approaches to this passage, but I, in my own ministry and conversations with people, have encountered at least these three. The first would be historic, 
right? There's a way of reading this and saying, hey, this is, a his, this is, this is history, right? This is a specific window into the first century and the way they did things then. And these instructions are culturally bound to that time and place. They don't have any relevance for us today. Probably be better for us to just move on from them or at least receive them as a historical anecdote to the way things were then. We could view them in a historic approach. We could also view them not just as unhelpful now, but we could view them in a harmful approach. We could say, this is harmful. This is exactly the thing that's wrong with Christianity and why it's so dangerous for a modern society. These things are outdated, they're bigoted, they're patriarchal, and this is the problem with Christianity. This teaching is harmful. Now, both of those are actually helpful because the Bible has been used in really harmful ways throughout history. It's been twisted to great harm. But what I want to do is actually invite you to a third type of approach, which would be something of a holy approach, to say that, yes, Paul is writing to a specific time and place, but also that God is speaking through the Bible, which is his holy word. Right? My, we were at the hotel room, and my daughter opens the, the drawer of the nightstand, and what does she find there? She finds the Gideon's Bible, right? And she's like, what is this doing here, Dad? Like, I'm like, well, I, they still have them in all sorts of hotel rooms. I don't, like, it's kind of amazing they still do that. And right on the cover, it says what? Holy Bible. So could we, as an approach, say there's something holy, something distinct set apart about this? that invites our thoughtful consideration. Not our immediate dismissal. Also, not our unsuspecting sort of quick reading, but invites us to consider what could God be saying here if we understand it first as they did and then perhaps apply it to ways that would be helpful to us. Like, could we think about the marriage customs there? Could we Think about how children were parented there. Could we think about slavery in a way that's perhaps similar to the transatlantic slave trade that we're all so familiar with? Or perhaps in a different way in the way that slavery was practiced then? What are the differences in assumptions that we need to consider? Now, okay, so historic, harmful, holy. What I can tell you, because of this letter, is that at the very least, what's being said here, at the very least, is that the gospel affects your relationships. Whether you disagree entirely with what's happening here, you cannot argue that Paul is saying the news of Jesus for the Christian matters for the ways that you interact with family. It matters for the ways that you operate in marriage. It matters for the institutions of, of that day. And so that is the way in which we have to, at the very outset, take this, is that Paul is saying Christ matters for that. And if we do it, what we'll do then is give ourselves a chance to step out of our current cultural moment and to practice, here's your big theology word for the day, disenculturation. 
to see the own assumptions of our culture and then begin to evaluate how is theirs different than ours and how might we be entangled in the very assumptions and attitudes of our day that we might not even know. It's like this. Culture is, is sort of like water where when you drink it out of the tap in your own city, it tastes very normal. But then when you go and travel somewhere else and you drink the water, you're like, what is this stuff? What do they put in it? Right? It, you, you, take, you begin to be aware of what's in the water, right? Or perhaps it could be like humidity. I mean, just because I was in Florida, right? You walk outside in a day like today and you're like, this feels like Minnesota. You walk off the plane in Florida and you're like, what is this place? It's like I immediately met with moisture in the air. Humidity. We need to disenculturate so that we can see the words of Christ and then begin to work them out in our own time and place. Is that fair? The last thing that I would say, just as disclaimer, is we have to acknowledge that the whole idea of a household is completely foreign to us. This is, as scholars would say, a household code. It is a set of laws given to the way a household would operate in the first century. We live in a time and place where the whole idea of a household as a family unit, an extended family unit at that, is so far beyond most of our experience. That we live in in a highly transient place such that family lives here, there, and everywhere. And then even then within the house, there's, there's a lack of sort of identity for what it means to be a family. So while we were... Um, at Disney World, I promise I won't do all Disney World stories for the next two months, but I will for this morning. Um, while we were there, there was one particular morning, it did happen most mornings, but one particular morning where the wheels really came off the bus, all right? Where like, it was, it was meltdown moment. And um, we are having a very, very significant moment. Perhaps, I mean, children were almost lost and like just, it was that time. And uh, while we're dealing with it and there's tears and there's all this happening, one of the cast members, which is what they call one of the workers, the cast members, um, comes over to us and starts talking to us, kind of interrupting the conversation a bit while there's clearly something going on. And she was really trying to help, um, but she began sort of talking about Disney and saying, hey, this is a magical place, and nothing is going to happen, and this is a place of happiness, and, you know, she just, like, she kept, keeps going with this feel, right? Um, and, I, and I, in my most Minnesota way, just decided to say, hey, you know what? Thank you so much for your concern. We need a moment here, so can you let Disney sort of rest for a minute? And, um, <laughs> and, and then I, I circled up the troop, and I said to them, hey, listen, we may be at Disney, but we are still the Senskis. We may be at Disney, but we are the Senskis. A family with a certain way of doing things, a family with patterns in how we treat one another, habits in the ways that we reconcile to each other, ways that we treat parents. We have a household. And just because we are staying at Mickey's house does not mean that our house has gone away, but that we have to figure out in the midst of this kingdom, this world, what it means for us to be Senskis here. The concept of household is lost on us, but it wasn't on them. 
And you see all throughout the Old Testament the idea of a house, a family, and all throughout the New Testament the idea of a household. I mean, I, I could totally read through dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures to help you see this word, especially the Greek word oikos, right? is significant in the New Testament and in the thinking of this day. And I would love to actually, in the future for us as a church, do some type of workshop on spiritual formation of households so that we can think together about what does it mean for us to shape families, extended families, even a church family that functions a bit like a household because the household of God is what the church is called. The family of God is what the church is called. So with those caveats, let me read through again and make some observations about these specific relationships. So hang on as we go through this. Here's verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay. In the first century, women were property. And so a woman or a wife was the property of a household, the property of the household manager, which was the father of the family. That is an interesting historical and cultural feature to what's going on here. Meaning the very fact that Paul addresses a woman as an individual is scandalous. In this context, to even address a woman as morally responsible and as an independent person is saying something. Now, before we react to the word submit, we have to understand the context that he's singling out the person that is a woman in this context. And that's a powerful statement of dignity and equality and upholds not the cultural moment of the day, but God's creational intent that man and woman were made in his image with equal dignity, value, and worth. Paul is reframing the family back to God's original design, even by simply addressing a woman in the first century. We can't miss that. But also, we have to see that in the movement of Jesus that he created, by his ministry and his leadership, women were featured. I mean, women were the, the sole witnesses at the tomb that saw Jesus resurrected. That's just astonishing in this moment that, that Jesus would bank the story of the resurrection upon these women. And moreover from that, it says that the majority of Jesus's public ministry was provided for by the financial means of women. That's incredible. Like Jesus in many ways brought freedom, dignity, and value to women that was unheard of in his present context. And so what you have to hear in the instruction is dignity. And you also have to receive that what he says is submit, not obey. Because the assumption would be a wife must obey as a property of the household. And instead what he's saying is women should serve they should come under and support. There should be peace and agreement in the relationship. 
It's powerful because in Ephesians, the parallel passage to this, Paul first says that husbands and wives are to submit to one another, that the church is to submit to one another, and that we're to submit to Jesus. So in the same language, he's involving the entire church community in the virtue of submission. And then he steps into the marriage relationship and says, wives, submit, support, encourage the leadership and the position of the husband in that time and place. Furthermore, throughout its usage in the New Testament, this word is used to convey really a beautiful service, one that reflects Christ himself, who came to submit. He came to serve, not to be served. So what you have here is is a really unique command in the first century. And then you have this qualifier as fitting in the Lord. Not as fitting in a cultural context, as fitting in the Lord, which Paul repeatedly says in the New Testament as he grounds this teaching in creation and to Christ, not just to cultural norms, which is a bit challenging for us to wrestle with. And then comes the harder command. If you thought submit was hard, it's because you have listened to it with, first century, with 21st century ears. If you think love is easy, it's because you've listened to it with 21st century ears. Love in this context is by far the harder and weightier command. What Jesus is saying here to husbands is, die. He's saying love sacrificially. He's not talking about love in terms of tolerance or acceptability. He's not talking about it as something passive. He's talking about it as something active, as something sacrificial, as something that's willing, that you're willing to pay a cost for. And he says this more explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and the way that Christ loved the church was to hang upon the cross. So for a man in the first century who would have had total authority over the household, could have done exactly what he wanted and seen no societal repercussions at all, Paul is saying, sacrifice, sacrificial love, covenant love is to mark the marriage relationship. Now, here's what that means. In the ancient world, marriage was in no way near a relationship grounded on love. It was a practical matter of provision for a woman and of really descendants for a man. But what you have here, because Paul has said Christ has loved you and you are to love one another, you have really the fertile soil of a loving relationship to to come about within a marriage in the first century, in a way that flips the script on what was culturally normal. It's powerful to say, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, that might, of course, bring up some questions, but if you really listen to what he's saying, he's saying, do not be harsh, meaning do not grow bitter with them, is the original word in sort of its full connotation. So what he's saying here is, In no way, as a Christian husband, can your relationship with a spouse grow to the point where you are unwilling to forgive and be irritated, where you are harsh or demeaning. All that he has said in chapter 3 is applied within that context in a marriage. 
and even the command to not be harsh is the instruction then to perpetually forgive and to show kindness and love towards someone that society would say is your property to do what you want with. That's scandalous in that time and place. Paul's inviting us to see that to, to live resurrected is to rethink your relationships. And for some of us, that means we'll need to rethink some of our assumptions that are more progressive. And for others of us, we'll need to rethink some of our assumptions that are more traditional. Because the truth of Scripture, to not go beyond it, would actually call us to, in some ways, be distanced from the assumptions on both ends of the spectrum and to embrace the dynamic of Christ and his love for us, letting that wash over into a marriage relationship where service of one another and love for one another is the dominating characteristic. It's a powerful change. How far does the gospel reach? It reaches into our relationships. And it begins to reframe even the way that we could think about marriage in a way that centers a marriage on Christ and then begins to flood it with his love, grace, service for one another. All right, here, on to parenting. Parenting. Children, obey your parents in everything. That's my favorite verse, um, especially at Disney World. And um, for this pleases the Lord. And then fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Do you see the same dynamic? This is the, the, the fourth of simple phrases with a command and then the consequence or the, the attached phrase here. Children, obey your parents. Why? For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children for the, lest they become discouraged. Obeying parents would uphold the cultural norms of the day. It would also agree with the Ten Commandments, which instructed children to respect, to honor their father and mother. And it would go well with them if they did so. But to some, if you think about parenting in terms of obey your parents, that feels like a sheer impossibility for many parents in our time. To get my kids to obey in everything, well, that's just not possible at all. Parenting is challenging, and it was then, and it is now. The interesting thing here is that he says it pleases the Lord which echoes back the original intent that Paul is praying for this church that's young like a child. This church at Colossae is young, and Paul is praying that it would grow up in the faith, learning in every way to please the Lord, to live and walk in a manner that honors God. It's a parenting analogy, and Paul makes it even more explicit here. Now, the, the funny thing is, the way that we think about father son, mother, daughter, parent-child relationship is in some ways, again, through 21st century years. Whereas if you were to look at it through the first century, you would see that total obedience was expected. It was expected. And then you would begin to see that in Christ, something of this sort of very hard and firm obedience demanded by a patriarch was getting redeemed and redefined. Think about the way that Jesus models 
childhood obedience to the Father. I mean, he literally says, I, I, I always live to please the Father. I obey him in everything. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that he didn't wrestle in conversation with the Father before going to the cross. Jesus was a child with a voice who did talk and process all of life with his father. Jesus was the one who told that great famous parable about a prodigal son who wandered and rebelled against the father. And and how does Jesus portray the father in heaven? As somebody who is a first century patriarch, able to do whatever, whenever to his children, so they obey? Jesus portrays the father as someone willing to hike up his robe in shame. Just ridiculous in the time period. And then run, bearing perhaps all of his undergarments to a watching world, just to race after this child who has finally returned home. As a father shows compassion to his children, that's the father that Jesus knew. That's the father who is the heavenly father. And it's not the father that the first century Israel knew. And Jesus came to bring it. What about this word, provoke? Fathers, do not provoke your children. All I'm going to say is, I wish it was flipped sometimes. Children, don't provoke your father. right? Because my experience is being provoked plenty of times by my own kids. But it's not. It's Fathers don't provoke your children, which is fascinating because sometimes children can be so challenging, almost so that they call forth a reaction, a response. Perhaps you knew a parent who would react and respond quickly to you, provoked by you. But the interesting thing, as I've reflected on this, is it really is when a parent provokes a child that things go very south. Meaning that when a parent feels they've lost control, and when when it really feels like the child is out of hand and definitely not obeying and pleasing the Lord, when a parent chooses to then provoke the child, to jab at the child in order to get them to obey, children in the end get very discouraged and defeated. When a parent resorts to intimidation and fear. When a parent resorts to shame, perhaps that's been your story. When a parent resorts to harm, when a parent resorts to guilting, when a parent says, I'm going to power play in order to get the behavior I want, they provoke. And when they do that, They have forgotten who they are and they have forgotten who the child is and they have forgotten what the Bible teaches. Listen to this church father named Pliny. He wrote to his friend in the first century about his friend's harsh treatment of one of his kids. This is what he says. He says, I was reminded by this example of excessive severity to write to you as one friend to another. Lest you on some occasion treat your son too harshly and strictly, remember that he is a boy and that you were once a boy. And perform your duty as a father, remembering always that you are a human being 
and the father of a human being. There is something really dehumanizing about parenting that grabs to control a child, that doesn't treat them as a full person, that resorts to fear, guilt, and shame in order to get the outcome desired. But the way of Christ is so different because we have a a father in heaven who does not resort to those things. He does not shame us. He does not guilt us and lay heavy burdens on us. He does not impose intimidation and fear upon us. Yet he seeks us by his love and his compassion. He's patient with us, slow to anger. We have in our heavenly father a model of parenting that does not discourage but rather encourages us to embrace our identity as a human being made in his image. That is the challenge of parenting, to remember who we are and to remember who a child is and to treat one another with that kind of love so that the the result is a, a loved, humble, confident, known, instructed child in what it means to please the Lord in all of life. We need to rethink our relationships, especially parenting ones. And we need the help of community to do so. It's amazing to me that most of parents nowadays learn parenting in non-personal ways. We learn it from podcasts. We learn it from an Instagram account. We learn it from a book. Like nobody's actually sitting down and talking with us about what is it like really to parent. Like nobody's talking about, hey, here's where I'm blowing it or here's where I need grace or here's, here's what I've learned that's helpful. And it's, it's so silly to me that the church is in some ways in the same funk. And there are a few places where there's, there's more despair, more challenge, more fear, more self-righteousness than in the arena of parenting in our time. So for Christian parents, nothing is gonna show you your sin like parenting. It's going to humble you. But also for Christian parents, nothing is going to show you God's strength and his love and grace, quite like parenting. And we need the blessing of a household, a church household, that can talk about these things and help us apply and press the gospel into the areas that we need it because the gospel reaches into our relationships. And to live resurrected, we have to be rethinking our relationships and letting us be renewed in our mind and our thinking and being renewed in our practices as well. Rethinking all in light of Christ. Okay, now, I've saved the least amount of time for the last. And there's a reason for that. Oddly enough, the most amount of time is spent on this in Paul's letter on slavery. But I'm going to spend the least amount of time for it because as an institution, at least in our current setting, not globally, but in our current setting, it's gone away. And while I do think there are some helpful parallels from slavery to modern day work, right? Work heartily unto the Lord could easily make that parallel and cross from this setting culturally, this town, into our town over here and saying, yes, all that we need to do, we need to do unto the Lord. But I actually believe that this is a really specific um, pastoral charge to the issues of slavery in the first century. And here's why I would say that. I would say it because Paul has just recently dealt with an issue in his life and ministry where he saw conversion of many slaves 
And then one of those slaves in a, in a city that he had done ministry with ran away from his master to run and flee to Paul. And then Paul gives instructions back to that master in the book of Philemon. This guy's name is Onesimus. And so to be honest, this is a, an incredibly important issue in the first century. And Paul in many ways doesn't flip over and call for the complete undoing of the institution of slavery in the ancient world. But he does subtly subvert its very premises with the power of the gospel. Let me show you that. Look at this. I'm going to read it to you, and then I want to show you what's really a fascinating insight. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Paul is not sponsoring revolt. He's not. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be repaid for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Four verses about who, directed to who? Slaves. One verse directed to who? Masters. Stop. Dignity to slaves, no time to masters. By even addressing a slave who was considered like an animal, Paul is conveying a kind of respect and moral responsibility, which many masters would have assumed their slaves were completely incapable of. He is directing his attention to convey value. And to masters, the only thing he has is a warning. You also have a master. That is a powerful statement. And what Paul is saying here in this time and in this setting is that the gospel can be lived out even in a very broken system. And what he does is he upholds the dignity of a person even in an impressive and broken system, which is a really good word for us, but one that in some ways doesn't translate quite in the same way. Not only does he say, hey, obey, so he gives them moral responsibility, but he says, work heartily, saying your work matters. And then moreover, he says, you can inherit something. A slave in that time could not own anything. And, and Paul is saying, you can inherit a, like from the Lord. You belong not just to this household, but you belong to the household of faith in the family of God. And what he said earlier in chapter three, that there is no slave, there is no free, is true in Christ. And that these dear brothers and sisters of Paul's were brought in by grace to the family of God and would receive an inheritance that is unthinkable in value. It's a powerful statement. And it's also a promise that God shows no partiality when likely the master that many of these slaves had known would show partiality, but that the work that they did and the behavior that they embodied and that, that the ethics of the gospel that they embraced would matter. It's powerful here. He was calling them to rethink relationships. 
And he's calling us to do the same in whatever setting, but especially in a household, especially with the relationships that are dear to us. Because the assumptions of the Colossians then, and I believe the assumptions of us here today, are such that we have figured out how to navigate relationships. We, have, we know, based on our own cultural practices, what it's like to be married and to do it well, and what it's like to have kids and to do it well, what it's like to work and to do it well. But Paul is saying the gospel reaches into those places and is relevant there. Causing a, calling us to center upon Christ and the new life that he has led us into. How far does the gospel reach? It reaches into all of our relationships. And to live resurrected, we have to rethink our relationships in light of the gospel. Because what's happened to us in Christ is that we also have been brought into a household. Right? Jesus said, as he was getting ready to go to the cross, that his disciples knew the way to where he was going. And where was he going? Well, he was going to the Father. And he said, do I not go to the Father's household, to the Father's house, to prepare a room for you, to prepare a place for you in the family of the living God? And if I go to prepare a place for you on the cross, then my journey there is worth it because I'll take you to where I am, into the Father's house. And what it means then to be a Christian more than anything is to have been brought into the family household of Jesus. And to the extent that we understand that and then begin to live that is the extent to which we really understand the faith and what Jesus offers us. This is one of the great insights of J.I. Packer, perhaps one of the most notable theologians of the 20th century. He says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament if you describe it as knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. As having God as his father, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Everything that Christ taught, he goes on. Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old. Everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God as us being brought into the household of God. To live resurrected, we've got to rethink our relationships in light of the household of the living God, which by faith you are now a part of. So let's pray and ask the Lord for help to do that.